Welcome to the UGA BCM podcast, a ministry of the BCM at the University of Georgia. To find out more about us, follow us on Instagram at UGA BCM. Be sure to hang around to the end of the episode for a special interview with Tommy. We hope you enjoy today's episode. get to roll into Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16, uh, and then we'll go all the way through chapter 19, verse 29, as we ask the question, why does Sodom and Gomorrah matter? Why does Sodom and Gomorrah matter? Now, let me give you a backstory to this. Many of you heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know, about, I don't know, eight, ten years ago, uh, there was a special that came on on Sunday nights. It was on one of the major networks. It's either uh, ABC or, or, or Fox. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but it was the, the Bible. That was the name of it. It came on on Sunday nights. It was brilliant to them. They, they put it out there on Sunday nights. It was like an eight-week series or something like that. And uh, the Old Testament portion of it did this story. All right, it did this story. And uh, my brother was watching it at his house. I was watching it at my house. And uh, I literally had said to my wife, because if you know the story, right, and we'll get into it in a minute, um, when the, the angels show up to Lot's house in Sodom, um, basically the, all the men of the town, says young and old, showed up because they wanted to know them. We'll explain in a minute what that means, right? And uh, needless to say, that doesn't work out too well, right? And uh, it's the coolest thing in the story on, or on the, uh, the, the, the TV show because I'm telling you, these angels were like ninja angels. You got it? I mean, that's like little black hoods, and they were like, whew, ready to kill everybody and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so I'm I looked at Mallory, and I was like, man, those angels look like more than ninjas, more like ninjas than angels. And about the time I said that, I got my phone out, because that's what we do even when you're my age. And all of a sudden, I see that my brother has posted on social media. If you're watching the Bible right now on TV, I'll tell you what. I didn't want to mess with those angels because they look like some crazy ninjas. And so that's when I think about this story and read it. Even as I was preparing for this, all I could think about was these angels that showed up at Abraham's house and then at Lot's house looking at ninja, like ninjas. That is not the point of tonight, all right? That is not the point of tonight at all. Uh, instead, what we've got to do is figure out what does this story tell us? kind of an interesting story right backstory to it though before we jump into it we need to realize that in Genesis chapter 14 uh, Abram which that's Abraham right before he's called right he's he's and told he's gonna have children and all this kind of stuff like his name is Abram God changes his name but Abram uh, had to raise an army in Genesis chapter 14 to save Sodom uh, and the reason for that is, is because Sodom had been ruled by the king of Elam for 12 years, and Sodom got tired of being ruled by the king of Elam. And if you go back even further, you remember that Abraham and uh, Lot, or Abram and Lot, they were traveling together. And what does Lot do? Does anybody remember what Lot does? Lot says, I'm going to go a different direction. Y'all remember that? He's like, I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going to take my family and my cattle and all this stuff over here. And Abram says, okay. Well, Lot ends up settling in Sodom. And when Lot settles in Sodom, needless to say, uh, they had been controlled by a foreign uh, king for a while, for 12 years. Year 13 rolls around and they say, we're tired of this, we're going to overthrow the king. Bad idea. Because what happens is, is they get taken captive and Lot himself becomes a prisoner of war. So a guy escapes, goes back to Abram and says, Abram, uh, Lot is a prisoner of war. Uh, Sodom is basically being destroyed and so Abram's like, dude, that's my kinfolk. We're not playing this game. And so he raises an army and he goes in 
and he destroys the army of Elam and he literally takes Lot and frees Lot and he gains Sodom their freedom. He gains Sodom their freedom. Now the king of Sodom at the time looks at Abram and says, you can have anything you want. You saved us, you gave us our freedom, you can have anything you want. And Abram looks at him and he says these words. This is important because we're going to come back to this in a minute. This is what he says. He says, basically his fear was that the king could say later, I have made Abram rich. And Abram understood that it was God and only God who, would, who had provided for and would provide for him. So with that backdrop, we move ahead 25 years. All right, so 25 years later, Lot's living in a free Sodom. Abram's chilling with his people. Now he's Abraham, and he gets three visitors that show up to him. When these three visitors show up to him, they're going to tell him that he's going to have a child. And uh, needless to say, he's promised that Isaac is going to be born. And literally at the end of this visit, there's three guys that show up. One is the Lord. All right, and, and, and most theologians would say that this was a theophany. When we say a theophany, it means that God literally shows up on the scene in human form or in what appears to be a human, not Jesus. Jesus is different than a theophany because Jesus was fully God and fully human, right? Jesus is God the Son. But a theophany we see in the Old Testament in different places where God shows up in human form, in some physical form. And so that is one of the visitors. The other two visitors we find out later in chapter 18 and chapter 19 are angels. And so Sarah and, and uh, Abraham are very hospitable to these guests. They treat them nice and all this. And as they're about to leave, we find ourselves in chapter uh, 18, verse 16. And this is where we pick up and we begin reading the story of why Sodom matters. Beginning in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 18. i got to read a lot. I'm going to read fast. Here we go. Then the men rose up from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. So they've told him, hey, you're going to have a kid, Isaac. And they're like, wow. This is when, remember when Sarah laughs? Y'all remember that story when you're little? Right? And they're like, you're going to have a kid. And they're in their 90s. And Sarah's like, ah, yeah, that's not happening. And, right? So, well, this is right after that. Verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him. This is important to read here to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So the Lord looks at these angels and goes, should I ha hide this from Abraham? I'm about to make him the father of great nations and I want him to know that if he's obedient, he teaches his children to live correctly and to live righteously, that I'm gonna do everything I've promised to him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So, so God basically says to these angels, he says, it, there's been an outcry. So somewhere, God's people are really upset with what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God says, I'm going to go check this out. Now, does he know? Obviously he knows. All right? That's not the point of the story. Verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So the angels are sent, the messengers of God, are sent down to Sodom. And Abraham came near and said, because he's heard what's going to go on, right? Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. 
Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so the Lord said, If I find inside on 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Although I am but dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of the five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. This is crazy, isn't it? Do you realize what's happening here? God's like, hey, that city is wicked. I'm going to go destroy it. Abraham, there's, I mean, Abraham's heart is compassionate toward this city, which, by the way, this is not one of the points tonight, but I would add this. You can't do ministry in a lost context. In other words, you can't do ministry to those who are lost unless you're compassionate towards those who are lost. I want to say that again. Well, many times what we do as Christians is, is we kind of snub our nose at those who don't live like Christians because they're not Christians. And instead, what we find even here is a place that God is ready to destroy. And what is Abraham saying? Would you save it for 50? Well, what if it's only 45? And, and what happens is you can continue reading there and ultimately we get down here to verse 32. And in verse 32, it says, Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. So he's went from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20. He gets down to verse 32 and he says, suppose 10 are found there. What if there's only 10 righteous? And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. And then we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 19 with what's going on in Sodom. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now this tells us, only the smart people, only the influential people, only the rich people sat at the gate. That's where business was done in the city. They went to the gate to do business. And so, y'all ever been in like a really small town where there's like one gas station? And if you got to find somebody in the town, you go to the gas station and you find them. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Right? Usually that town has a Hardee's and all the really influential people also sit at the Hardee's in the morning. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Amen? Okay? The gate, that's what happens at the gate. So that's where Sodom is. So clearly he's influential. And so these guys show up, and look what it says. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, However, no, but we didn't. They said, However, no, but we, will, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. By the way, he's not urging them strongly not to just chill out in the, the square town for no reason whatsoever. It's very clear that Lot knows the city he lives in. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. Do I need to define what that means? Okay, just making sure. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them and said, Please, my brother, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. 
Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. So they're like, look, you're not even from here, dude. Chill out. Don't judge us. That sounds like the world, doesn't it? Don't judge us. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. This is in the show when they turn into ninja uh, warriors, right? But the man reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Who else have you here? A son-in-law, your sons, and your daughter, and whomever you have in this city. Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcries become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Dude, this story is so messed up. His daughters were, were given to men to be married already, right? The town is literally ready, and, and this is crude, but they're, they're literally ready to gang rape these men. And so what does he do? He offers his daughters. And then you read a little later in your story where you get here and you're like, whoa, hold on. Not only did he offer his daughters, which is messed up enough, but his son-in-laws were in the house. So he says, look, they're about to destroy the city. And his son-in-laws think he's joking. Everybody in the house is like, this man must be joking. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, so it gets through the night, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hands at the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. So he literally has to be him and his family drug out of the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountain or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot go to the mountains, for disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be safe? So he's scared to go to the mountains. He says, let me go to this little town instead. He said to him, behold, I grant you the request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. So he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the surrounding area. And Lot's like, I got to go to this little town. It's small. They had not done all this terrible stuff. If I go to the mountain, somebody's going to find me. Somebody's going to kill me. I can't go up there. We can't survive in the wilderness, right? Okay, he, he was not a survivor of the wilderness, clearly. And so, like, he, I don't know if he didn't know how to make fire. I don't know what the issue was. But he's like, I can't handle it. And so he says, sure, you can go to this city. The sun had risen over the earth, and Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. By the way, um, theologians tell us, biblical historians tell us, you're talking about like where the Dead Sea and all that stuff is. Y'all got what I'm saying? Right? It's pretty salty over there still today. Nobody laughed. It's literally salty over there. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. We'll stop there. This is tough. It's a terrible story, isn't it? So here's the thing. 
a lot of people like to try to like sugarcoat the story and say that the story is not about the issues that were going on, but it's really about hospitality. That is honestly, there's this thing called hermeneutics. It's how you like interpret scripture. People that say that would fail every honest hermeneutics class in the world. Because one of the ways that you do good hermeneutics, one of the ways that you interpret scripture is to interpret it through other passages of scripture. And ultimately, to interpret this scripture, to figure out what the meaning of it is and why in the world it's important, you have to look at Jude, which also talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and references the issue that's actually going on here. You have to get past Ezekiel, which also references Sodom and Gomorrah and the issue that's going on here. You have to get past Peter's writings and what he says. And you even have to get past what Jesus says. Okay? So we're, we're not going to sugarcoat this. This is not a, was this really about homosexuality? That's not what this is about. You know why it's not that what this is about? Because it's exactly what the Bible says the issue was. It was sexual sin. There's no other way around it. Now, our world may call that hate speech. It's what the Bible says. It's not what I say. It's what the Bible says. That doesn't mean we don't love our neighbors. That doesn't mean we don't have compassion. Guess who clearly had compassion? Abraham. He fought for these people, right? But it is what it is. So number one, that's not what we're going to discuss tonight. Number two, we're not having some crazy... A historical discussion about whether or not the place existed. It's not what we're discussing tonight. Again, if Jesus says it, it's good enough for me. The dude rose from the grave. And every historical account you can find confirms that there was a man named Jesus that lived and he had a bunch of followers that would do crazy stuff even to the point of death because they believed and had claimed that they had seen him risen. So, with all that in mind... What does it mean? Well, number one, the reason it's important is because of what it tells us about sin. Because of what it tells us about sin. Here's what it tells us about sin. It tells us God is just. And it tells us that God hates sin. He hates all sin. All right, there's no question about that. We know he's just. Matter of fact, when Abraham is trying to get him not to destroy the city, if there's 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous people in it, he literally uses that argument against God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now, by the way, God already knows who's righteous in that city. He's not arguing with Abraham. Abraham is human. Abraham has a limited understanding of what's taking place. God does not. So he's answering Abraham honestly when Abraham says, if there's 50, he's not saying you're going to change my mind. He's saying if there's 50, yeah. If there's 45, yeah. If there's 40, yeah. But God knows there's not. Does that make sense? And so God's going to act justly. He always will. Now, as I said, the specific issue here is sexual sin. Now, were they unhospitable? 100%. Were they prideful? 100%. Okay? But the issue is what the issue is. You can't get around it. Matter of fact, here's what we know about sin. What we know about sin is that believers have to guard against becoming callous towards sin when they are surrounded by sin all the time. Especially sexual sin. 
Could we all agree with that? Could we? And guess what? One of the reasons we know that's the case is because if you go further, we're not going to read it for sake of time. But we know that Lot, the fact that he lived in the midst of all this sin had changed him. And we know it had not just changed him, but it had changed his family. How do we know that? Because when they get to the mountains, do y'all know the rest of the story? His daughters, who had never been with a man, were so perverted by the perversion that was going on in the city that their solution to needing a child was, guess what? To get their dad drunk two nights in a row and take turns sleeping with him. That's how the story ends. Do you see that? Because here's what happens. If you don't believe me, go read Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, you get down there in verses 24, 25, 26, 27. Man, it gets hard. And I'll tell you why it gets hard. Because what you realize is this. Is that we reach a point when we are surrounded by sin and when sin begins to control us. That we begin to call what is not sin, sin. Or excuse me. I said that backwards. What is sin, not sin? I said that right that time, right? Yeah, that would have been bad. That's what we do. And here, that's what's taking place. One theologian put it this way. One must recognize the decay of the culture and the erosion of Lot's ethical standards through long exposure to it. Another one said this. Lot had become imbued with the spirit of Sodom. His wife disregarded the command concerning looking back, and the daughters showed clearly that they had been deeply affected by the sexual laxity of the city in which they had done their growing up. Let's contrast this with Abraham. Abraham did everything that God wanted him to do, right? Now, I get it. Somebody's going to say, hold on now. God had promised him a child, and then, like, he didn't have a child for a while, and then, like, we get that whole Hagar thing and all that stuff. Somebody's going to say that, right? I get it. I get it. Okay? But what we see here is very clear. There is a comparison and a contrast that's taking place with even the way that Abraham responds to the Lord and and the visitors that come, the angels that come. There's a very clear contrast with that. But instead, what we find is, when we look at Lot, is that Lot offers sin to cover other sin. Matter of fact, go back to chapter 14. In chapter 14, what happens is, is Abram looks at the king of Sodom and says, I don't want you ever to be able to say that you own me. I don't want you to ever be able to say that the things that I got and that I became rich because of the king of Sodom. And do you know what we know? What we know is that Sodom was already a messed up, sinful, dark, perverted place. And I'm sure Abram knew that. And so Abram says, I don't, look, I'm going to have compassion for the world. I'm going to care for the world. I'm going to help the world when the world is in need. But you better believe I'm never going to be owned by the world. But yet Lot lives in the middle of the world. Right? Kind of brings to mind that verse that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? 
right? And so here we have Abraham who clearly says, man, I'll help, I'll help those guys, but I ain't getting in the midst of that. No, that's a mess, right? But Lot says, I'll be fine. I can chill right in the middle of it, and it's not going to affect me. It's not going to affect me. But instead, we see that when the men show up and they want to have relations, the Bible says, with the angels, because they think the angels are men, what does Lot do? You know what Lot does? Lot gives a cultural solution to the problem. That's what Lot does. And do you know what we do today? Woo! Y'all gonna like this. Or you're never gonna come back. But you know what? It's the Bible. It's not me. This is my opinion. You know what we do today? We try to give a lot of cultural solutions to sin problems. Do you know that? Whether it's the, the sin of racism. Whether it's the sin of the act of homosexuality. Whether it's the sin of hate whether it's the sin of murder, what we do as a culture is this. We give cultural solutions when really the only solution is the Bible. The only solution is the transforming of someone's heart and mind. But we give cultural solutions. And then, guess what? When somebody speaks up and says, that's not what the Bible says, people call you a bigot. People say you hate. People say you're trying to be political. Right? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? That's what happens. But listen, Lot gave a cultural solution. Because in Lot's mind, he said, well, you know what? We're going to pick a lesser sin over a greater sin. That's what Lot does. He literally takes these sins, and as he's thinking here, he's like, you know what? In our society... This is what he's thinking. This is literally what he's thinking because of the culture of the day. In our society, if these two men, because he's not real sure they're angels and stuff right now, right? He doesn't realize that. If these two men are literally gang raped by this town, they're done for. That's what he's thinking. My daughters are virgins. They're betrothed to these other guys. It still ain't going to be good for him, but it'll be a little worse than it would be for these two men. And so he literally tries to choose the lesser of two evils. It's what he tries to do. Is that not awful? Number one, we know that's not the lesser of two evils. That's just stupidity to think that's what he's doing. Why would he think that way? Why would his thought process be so messed up? That he would be willing to give his daughters. Well, because the sin that he was living in the midst of had begun to callous him towards sin. Simple as that. It's why Lot's wife looks back. It's why they literally had to be convinced to leave. They get told, we are about to destroy this city. Get out. And they laugh. And they laugh. They enjoyed living in the midst of sin more than they did being obedient to God. Sometimes I wonder, if God were to send a messenger to our city, to our state, to our country and say, man, I'm about to destroy this place, get out. 
and he were to tell us to get out and go to the wilderness somewhere, or go to some third world country somewhere, or go to some other place somewhere, how many of us would laugh? Or how many of us would fight back and not want to leave because we're comfortable where we are? Oh, Tommy, I'd never do that. You do it every day. We do it every day. When we get comfortable in our sin, it takes God knocking us flat on our back before we respond most of the time. It's the truth, isn't it? It tells us that God hates sin because God is just, therefore he must judge. It tells us that believers must guard against becoming callous by sin. Why is this so important? Because sin has long-lasting effects. Lot loses everything. Everything. It's him and his daughters. It's what's left. And then what do they do? They're getting drunk. They commit incest. And do you know what happens? What happens is, is from this point forward, check this out. Lot's descendants become enemies of Abraham's descendants. Do you know that? Lot's descendants become enemies of Abraham's descendants. Do you know that most of the world's issues, particularly in the Middle East, you can, you can trace back to Lot and Abraham and his maidservant. Ishmael. Ishmael was his maidservant. Ishmael was the result of his maidservant. Y'all got that? Because the same issues that are in the Middle East today, if you trace back those countries and you trace back historically where they come from, guess what you find? The mistakes that are made. Literally, the mistakes that are made. Lot is the prototype of what it looks like to allow your family to be conformed to the world and the consequences that come with it. Ezekiel tried to mark this. I hope it stayed. Otherwise, I'll be searching for it, and then I'm just going to turn the page. Ezekiel chapter 16. Listen to what this says. This is crazy. Yeah, it didn't stay, but I'm just going to turn there anyway. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. That word abomination is the same word that we get sexual sin from. You got that? It's always referencing sexual sin when we see it in Scripture this way. And then look what it says. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 through 50. We're giving a great warning Matthew chapter 11, verse 24, this is Jesus speaking. We see a warning from him. It says, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you when he addresses the idea of unrepentant cities. See, here's the point. The point is, is that sin has long-lasting consequences and effects, and ultimately sin causes you to lose everything. Everything. You say, Tommy, I know a lot of people that aren't living for Jesus and they, it seems like they got everything. Well, they may for right now. But one day we're going to die. And when we do, 
what are we left with? What are we left with? Sin. Why does Sodom matter? Because it tells us about sin. God hates sin because he is just. Believers must guard against becoming callous by sin. And sin has long-lasting effects. So what does that mean for you? Well, I'll tell you what it means for you. Some of you are sitting there right now and you're like, you know what, Tommy? I think I've begun to call that which is sin, not sin. I think I've justified in my mind things I do. I think I've justified in my mind things that my friends do. I think I've rationalized, well, I feel a certain way or they feel a certain way and so thus it makes everything okay. I think I've probably said in some cases, well, I'm choosing the lesser of two evils. And what I'm here to tell you is this. Is that we live in a world and that we live in a culture that I'm just telling you. Isn't far off from Sodom. Billy Graham's wife said it this way. She said, if God isn't going to judge America, he'd have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That was Billy Graham's wife, not me. That's what she said. So why else does it matter? Well, I'll tell you why. Because of what it tells us about the Savior. This is really a quick one. The Savior's just. But because He's just, He's going to take care of the righteous. When we started hearing that last week in relation to the flood, I was like, oh no, he's stealing all my thunder for next week. And then I was like, but actually it's the same point in both the stories. It really is. Matter of fact, when you read this story, you may ask yourself, how in the world would you call Lot righteous? I'd say he's righteous because God saved him. And God had just told Abraham, if there's 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, I will save them. And instead he finds one in his two daughters. Right? Tries to save the whole family. Wife won't look back. Or looks back. Won't. Just keep going. So we see he's righteous. Which tells me. You know what it tells me? It tells me, based on what the Old Testament tells us about how you're found righteous. Which is through your belief and your faith. Guess what? No matter how bad, how sinful, how difficult the world, the culture, and the context you may live in. No matter how dumb or bad or sinful or messed up something may be that you have done in your life. Because you better believe Lot did some dumb stuff. Guess what? Through faith... God will save you because he is a just God but he is also merciful and gracious and so the Lord saves Lot that's where the emphasis really lands it seems like Abraham is bargaining with God but really the focus there is not that Abraham is bargaining with God it's the fact that God would have saved 50, he would have saved 45, he would have saved 40, he would have saved 30, he would have saved 10, and he would even save one. One. 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 9 tells us this. These are good words right here. It says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by redu reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Guys, the point to this story is simply this. God is going to judge those who are unrighteous. God is going to judge those who do not put their faith and trust in him. Not because he's some mean God that's wanting to thump people in the head. No, because he's just and because he's righteous. And so honestly, we all deserve to die. We all deserve to be turned into a pillar of salt. But 2 Peter reminds us the same way the story of Sodom and Gomorrah reminds us that, listen, yes, God will judge the unrighteous, but God will have mercy and grace on those who are righteous. The contrast here is Abraham and Lot, both clearly believers in the Lord. But one was obedient and stayed set apart from the world and one was not. And we see where it landed. We can all be affected by sin. We can all find ourselves in a place where sin begins to control our life. Robert Frost wrote a poem, The Road Not Taken. Now, if you're a literature person, you're going to say, Tommy, he wrote that poem as a joke with a buddy of his who used to always go walking through the woods and couldn't figure out which way to go. I know he did. But just listen. Because he may have thought it was a joke. But boy, there's spiritual significance. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. Seemed the same, right? And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Abram and Lot stood where two roads diverged. And Abram took the one less traveled. The question to you today, 
is which one will you take? Culture says, go this way. God's word says, go this way. And to many, they look very similar or the same. But the one not taken will make all the difference. Bow your heads. For some of you tonight, you're sitting here under the same condemnation that everyone in Sodom had. Because you're sitting here under the same condemnation that every sinner has, no matter the sin. No matter how we might rule it, how great or small. And if that is you, then you have a decision to make tonight. Of which road will you take? Will you continue to follow your own pride? Will you continue to follow your own will and your own way? Or will, tonight, you be found righteous in the eyes of God by putting your faith and trust in Him? By turning and repenting of your sin, asking Him to be your Lord and Savior, committing to live your life for Him for this day forward. Tonight, if you're here and that's you, then listen. The Bible tells us whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why don't you call on Him tonight? Put your faith and trust in Him and ask Him to lead you through this life's way. Secondly, for some of you tonight, you're like Abram or Lot in that you have a belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have trusted the Lord, but yet you find yourself in the place that Lot did, where that you are living in the midst of sin. Maybe it's in your own personal life, or maybe it's just that it's fully surrounding you. We're on a college campus with almost 40,000 students. Sin abounds here tons. But you know what? The Bible tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's what the Bible says. So I want you to hear me tonight. If you're here and you're a believer and you find yourself where you begin to say that the things that God's word says are not okay, you begin to call okay. Maybe you begin to worship, worship that which is created rather than the creator. That's what Romans 1 says it starts with. Maybe you've become comfortable living amongst sin and darkness and decay. Listen, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And do you know how you find that grace? You do exactly what Lot did. You flee from that sin. But you don't do like his wife and you don't turn back. And you don't do it like his whole family where you go begrudgingly. You run away. And when you run away, you run into the arms of a loving father who will be there standing. The same way the father of the prodigal son was. So tonight, the invitation is this. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, call out to him tonight. Just say, Lord, I need you. Forgive me. Save me. I repent. I turn from my sin. I make you my Lord. And he will. Secondly, tonight, if you're a believer, live like Abraham. 
not like Lot. Live like Abraham, not like Lot. Guys, our world is Sodom. It's all around us. And Lord only knows what it's going to be like for my children one day. Have compassion the same way that Abraham did. But guard yourself against becoming callous with sin. Seek after the Lord. Stay close to Him. Draw near to Him and Satan will flee from you. Would you make that commitment tonight? Well, what is up, guys? We had an amazing, amazing last night last night at Gathering. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Ryan, um, and I'm joined here with our campus minister, Tommy. Tommy, how'd you feel about last night? Uh, last night was a great night. Uh, I had a great group of uh, students there, uh, some new faces in the crowd, which is always good. Uh, the band rocked it again. Uh, got to hear a video at the end from Anna Appleby and how Send Me Now has impacted her life. And uh, so, yeah, it's just overall a great night. Yeah. Uh, so kind of just some questions we got uh, today in regards to sin. Uh, you mentioned last night uh, how culture today has really taken things that are sin and called them not sin. So the questions we got today really focus on that. The first one being, how do we respond to the believer that calls things that are sin, not sin? Yeah, I'm glad you, you asked that question, Ryan. Uh, that, that's the one thing that, uh, looking back at last night, I kind of feel like, you know, you just run out of time. Um, I would have loved to have had a, another hour to unpack, okay, so here's what we learned from Sodom about sin and about the Savior, but now how do we respond to it in interacting with our culture? And so to the believer, I would say, uh, if you're dealing with a fellow believer who calls something that's sin, not sin, whatever that may be, right? Um, it, it, there, you're dealing with specific issues of sin, um, whether that's that's drunkenness, whether that's homosexuality, whether that's sex outside of marriage, um, whether that's lying, whatever it is. And so in that case, um, if they're professing to be a believer, they're professing to believe Scripture and so in that case, you take them back to what Scripture says about those specific sins uh, because they're a professing believer. And so therefore, uh, the standard that we deal with that is different than it is if it's an unbeliever. And so for there, you deal with that individual sin, point them back to what Scripture says about that sin. And really you do um, what Scripture tells us in Matthew in dealing with with a believer where there's a, an issue or conflict. You deal with it one-on-one. If that doesn't work, you bring somebody else to the table and, and go through those steps that way. Yeah, uh, and you kind of touched on it there uh, at the end of your response with uh, how it's different than a non-believer um, who is calling sin. It's They're not calling it sin. So how do we respond to the unbeliever um, who does those things? Yeah, so I think one thing that we have a tendency to do uh, within the Christian world is that we will hold uh, 
non-believers to the same standard that we hold believers to, and that's actually opposite biblically. Um, if we're not careful, we'll you know, say, man, look at what the world's doing, and we'll just blast the world, those who are unbelievers. And, and in reality, we need to remember that someone that doesn't know Jesus is going to act like someone that doesn't know Jesus. Uh, matter of fact, someone that, that's not a believer is likely going to call a lot of things that are sin, not sin, not just one or two particular issues. And so in that case, um, what's important there is the gospel. What's important there is to share with that person not a checklist of you shouldn't do this or God's word says you should do A, B, C, and D, not E, F, G, and H. But instead, what we do is we point them back to Christ and we share the gospel with them. And when Christ then begins to change their heart, what happens is, is that then they be begin to become sanctified. And so they become more like Christ. That's what that word means. And they'll begin to recognize and acknowledge those individual sins in their life. Now, I would say this. It's also important to recognize we're not saying that you don't point out sin because somebody needs to know that they are sinners for them to recognize their need for Jesus. I mean, that is the gospel. But uh, it's different when we point out sin and the fact that we are sinners, and, and, and that's kind of a broad statement and concept that I think we all understand versus um, what about sin A, what about sin B, what about sin C, especially if they've been fully enveloped by the culture and it's impacted their way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I know personally in my life I've seen uh, just countless times people that'll try and uh, they'll complain about uh, somebody, about the way culture has become. Uh, but if they're, if they're a non-believer, we can't expect them to act like, uh, to act like believers would. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, I, and I tried to address that a little bit last night when I, I think it was toward the end, I talked about the fact that what we've done is we've created a society in which we've tried to answer sin problems with cultural answers. Uh, and that's really what Lot did when he offered up his two daughters, uh, right? Instead of, the, instead of the two angels, which the, the men in town thought were men, and they, they wanted them and, um, for inappropriate purposes, obviously. And, and so what Lot does is he offers a cultural answer to a sin issue, and in reality, what he was doing was really offering another sin to solve a sin. And um, we have to be careful to recognize that anyone that doesn't know Jesus, that's apart from Jesus, that is likely their thought process. Likely they have been shaped by the culture, and so they are going to offer cultural solutions to sin issues. When we know as believers, the only true solution to sin issues is Jesus. That's right, yeah. Um, well, that was great. Um, any, uh, any final thoughts just about Sodom and Gomorrah overall? Uh, yeah, I'm glad we're done <laughs> with it. Um, you know, it's, it's hard because, you know, homosexuality is a hot topic in our culture today. And so I asked some students yesterday going into it, I said, hey, you think I'm just going to talk about this the whole time tonight? And some of them were like, yeah, yeah, I think that's probably what you're going to do. And I wanted them to understand even yesterday afternoon that that's not, that's not what we're going to do. It is clearly a sin. It is there. Um, and it was the catalyst for what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. However... Uh, the truth of the matter is, is what we can see in that story is a massive, massive amount about what sin does to the human condition uh, and to our minds and to our hearts. 
but yet also that if there is one person to be saved, uh, that is enough for God. And we see that in Lot. That's right. And I think when you pointed that out last night, I that immediately took me back to uh, the parables that Jesus told of the seed of the sheep and of the son of how he goes out and he seeks the one who is lost um, and how that's that's true for Jesus, but it's also true of all of Scripture. Right. Well, and it, and it also goes back to why did Jesus come to begin with? Um, I, uh, I preach a sermon um, on uh, that particular passage, but I focus more on um, the prodigal son, right? And, uh, and I just call it lost people. And the point of the sermon is, is that every single thing we do, every question we ask about how to do ministry, how to live our lives, like the answer should be lost people. Now, I've, I've had people push back on that and say, no, it's, it's to bring God glory. So you're right. But what is that first domino that falls that leads to bringing God glory? Well, it's seeing lost people come to know Christ, right? And that's why Jesus came. He came to seek and save those which were lost. And so while that's an Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we still see God's heart for those um, who, who he loves. Uh, we see God's heart for, for Lot, uh, we see Abraham's compassion for that city, and in the midst of that, we're able to build that bridge and take us to exactly what you're saying and realizing that, man, Jesus came for those who are lost. And if it, even if it was just one lost sheep, that was enough. And so that that's pretty powerful. Yeah, so, yeah. it is. Uh, last question. Uh, you want to give us a preview of what's happening next week? Yeah, uh, so uh, we're going to look at... Um, when uh, Abraham takes Isaac uh, up on the mountain to sacrifice him and uh, what, what God does there in providing the realm. And so I am excited about it because, again, it's just an amazing opportunity to look at a story in Genesis in the very early part of the Old Testament and see how that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, everything points us back to Jesus and so I'm really excited about next week. So make sure that you're there. Also, uh, if you're a freshman, uh, next week, uh, immediately after the service, uh, you'll be having an ice cream social uh, and kicking off our freshman uh, ministry. So uh, two great reasons to come. Number one, we get to talk about Abraham and Isaac, which is just an amazing story. Number two, uh, if you're a freshman, free ice cream. You can't beat that. Yeah, you really can't. Uh, well, Tommy, it's been a pleasure. Um, and for everybody listening out there, it's been an amazing experience last night and through this interview today. Uh, we hope you'll join us next week in person. Uh, if you can't, uh, you'll be able to hear about Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice there. We thank you all again for joining us. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Again, for more information on us, check out uh, us on Instagram at UGABCM. Y'all have a great week. Good dogs. One, two, three.